Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we will hear from Tom Kahn, a faculty fellow at American University, an adjunct professor at George Washington University, and a senior consultant at the Cormac Group, a Washington public affairs firm. He formerly spent 20 years as staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee. And today, he'll talk about the all-important budget reconciliation process, which could enable congressional Democrats to pass much of their agenda without any Republican support. Let's listen in. So Glenn Lowenstein from Houston, Texas, one of the leaders of No Labels, we're going to just kick it off to you, Glenn. Okay, thank you. Okay, so first, before we get started, I see Ken DeAngelis um, on the screen. He gave the most amazing talk at the University of Texas on Thursday morning, maybe Friday morning last week. It was awesome to some of the leadership of, of the University of Texas. And so thank you, Ken. It was, it was amazing. It's not an easy thing to do. And I hadn't sent you an email yet, so I just had to say that. Um, so tonight we have Thomas Kahn, and um, he is an expert in the federal budget and is going to talk to us a bit about reconciliation. Thomas is a distinguished fellow at American University Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency, and he teaches at George Washington University, and he's a senior consultant at the Cormac Group. But here's what's really, to me, I I researched some of his background. He's been in Congress. He's been working in the Congress as staff for over 33 years. And 20 of those years, he was staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee. And during that time, he worked on major bipartisan deficit reduction acts or studies and was also involved in the Biden talks with President Obama and John Boehner. And also going back to 1997, was involved in the balanced budget agreement that Congress actually did. So he was involved in Simpson-Bowles and the Super Committee. And so he is an expert on how these budgets are created. And in a conversation we recently had, is an expert on what you actually can do in reconciliation and what you cannot do. And so, Thomas, I hope I did you justice on this topic that everyone in No Labels wants to hear about. So we're going to turn it over to you for 10 or 15 minutes, and then we're going to pummel you with questions. So please take it away. Well, first of all, Glenn, thank you for that beautiful introduction. You know, the old saying, my um, father would have loved it, my mother would have believed it. So um, I'm very flattered by your very kind words. Um, and I'm really excited and I'm honored to join all of you. Um, I've long had great respect for no labels, and uh, I will say that I am very proud to call Nancy Jacobson a, a very dear family friend of 35 years. Nancy and I tease each other that we actually met when we were eight years old. So that's how far back it, it goes. Um, and I see a lot of other friends um, here as well. I see um, my old friend Fred Zeidman and Alan Reich and, and others. It's always been just about naming people. I deeply believe, and I teach my students at American University, that polarization and extreme partisanship are the greatest single threats to our political system and really perhaps to our society. And I think that's really a lesson that we, we all take away from January 6th. No labels is so important, I think, because 
with its problem-solving agenda and the work of the Problem Solvers Caucus, No Labels works every day to close that gap, build the bridges, and increase cooperation between the parties. Um, so tonight I'm gonna focus on budget reconciliation, as Glenn said, how it works, how Congress and the White House are expected to use it. Um, I know reconciliation pretty well because I wrote a bunch of reconciliation bills. Um, I don't pretend to be an expert at all on the president's infrastructure bill um, or the family plan proposals. So tonight we're gonna to stick to the reconciliation process if that's okay. Um, I will kind of give you a caveat at the beginning that some of this can get a little technical and it gets a little arcane. Um, a little story that uh, budget geeks like me like to tell, the story we say is we say that if you have a month to live, you should study reconciliation rules. And the reason is it'll seem longer. So um, I hope this doesn't seem like a month to you. I will try to juice it up. I'll only go for um, 15 minutes, uh, 10, 15 minutes, and then um, answer your question. But the rules are really important to understand because they guide the process and they will shape the final outcome of the legislation. It's like baseball. You can't follow the game unless you have a scorecard. Um, so budget reconciliation was originally designed to pass budget priorities while circumventing the filibuster. And it's been used by both political parties to pass major initiatives like Obamacare and the Trump tax cuts. Um, and while it's designed as a fast track process, it is really complex, it is very time consuming, the only thing that's fast about it is it avoids reconciliation. So before we get to the actual chart, let me just, I think it will be worthwhile just to review the bidding. The White House has already, in Congress, have already used reconciliation to enact the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. But the White House has two more huge tax and spending plans on the way. The first is their $2.5 trillion infrastructure jobs bill which they released last week. And in the next few weeks, the White House will be sending Congress another large spending and tax plan focusing on human investments like child. Um, we have not seen the second one, the second package. Um, and as, as I understand it uh, from my friends at the White House, it's still, parts of it are still being written. Uh, most observers expect Congress are gonna, is gonna be using reconciliation to pass both plans. Senator Schumer said again yesterday that uh, they hope they can pass them on a bipartisan basis without reconciliation. But in order to do that, they're gonna need 10 Republican senators and currently they have none. So I'll let you be the judge. From my standpoint, reconciliation, at least at this point, looks pretty unavoidable. So now let's turn to the PowerPoints. Um, the first chart, just shows you the history of reconciliation and the many times it's been used. Um, it's been used 21 times to sign bills into law. Four of them have been um, vetoed. Um, a whole range of them going all the way back to Ronald Reagan in 1981. Most recently, the Trump tax cuts used reconciliation in 2017. Obamacare, uh, the welfare reform, the Clinton budget, uh, and um, the 1981 Reagan spending cuts, the Bush tax cuts. So um, in fact, the Bush tax cuts were not, but the others were. Um, 
So that gives you a flavor that reconciliation has been used by both parties over a long period of time. Why don't we turn to the next slide if we could, Liz. So let's just do a real quick key points about reconciliation. Um, and forgive me, some of this you probably know already, but I think it's worthwhile just going over the basics. The reason why it's so powerful is because it avoids the filibuster rule. The filibuster rule says it takes 60 votes in the Senate to get closer to um, stop debate and actually have a vote on a bill. But with reconciliation, it's only 51 votes. And that makes it a very, very powerful tool. So what do you need in order to get reconciliation? You're gonna need a lot and we'll go through those tonight. The first thing you need is you need a budget resolution and the budget resolution has to have reconciliation instructions and you have to pass the budget resolution with those instructions. All right, second, third, what can reconciliation change? And this is really important and we'll get back to the details on this. So this, we're just doing a snapshot right now. Reconciliation can change taxes or spending, sorry, mandatory spending. Um, it cannot change policy. Now, I'll just drop a footnote because Bill Galston is here and I know he'll correct me. Uh, it can also change the debt limit, but we're not at that point right now. So let's stick to taxes and spending. It's mandatory spending and it is not policy, as I said, and we'll come back to that. And finally, um, the bird rule. You're gonna hear a lot about that and you probably already have. What is the bird rule? The bird rule blocks provisions which are considered quote unquote extraneous to the budget. And let me just emphasize that very briefly. Senator Byrd, who I think most of us remember, wanted to make sure that reconciliation was not used in a willy-nilly fashion to pass just about anything, gun control, um, abortion, um, whatever. He said, no, it ought to stick to the budget. And so he had the Byrd rule passed versus the Senate rule. And now it's been enacted in 1990, it was enacted into law. So it's actually part of the US code. And it prohibits anything in reconciliation which has nothing to do with the budget. And we will come back to that and talk about it in greater detail. And I'm sure you'll have questions on that. Let's go to the next slide. Now, I'm sorry there's so much in this slide, but I just think it's worthwhile going through it because these are the steps that are required in order to pass reconciliation and all eight of them. And it's important because without one of them, the whole thing falls apart. And it's why I said before, that the only thing that is expedited about reconciliation is the fact that it gets around uh, the filibuster, but otherwise it is arduous. It is hugely time consuming um, and complex. So let's, let's just go through it. As I said before, number one, the House and Senate budget committees first have to pass budget resolutions and those budget resolutions must contain reconciliation instructions. So what does that mean? Those instructions, in the budget resolution, tell the authorizing committees to write bills to either raise or cut spending or raise or cut taxes. The budget resolution cannot be filibustered in the Senate. I mentioned before the reconciliation bill can't, uh, and that is true, but in addition to the reconciliation bill, the budget resolution itself, which is the precursor to reconciliation, that can't be filibustered either. So once you get through the budget committees passing the budget resolution, Number two is the House and Senate obviously have to pass them. Number three, you then conference the two the differences in the two versions. 
and then you pass the conference report. And under law, you're supposed to do that by April 15th. The truth is that law is often broken. Uh, in fact, it is rarely complied with, but it is in the law, April 15th is the deadline. Once you pass a budget resolution conference report, that's when the real, that's when heavy lifting starts. And I don't mean to say budget resolutions are not heavy lifting, but the real nitty gritty. So here we are at number four. The authorizing committees actually write the reconciliation bill itself. So for example, in the case of um, um, uh, the, the, the infrastructure bill, the transportation committee will write the different provisions dealing with highways or um, provisions dealing with um, carbon, well, not carbon tax because the Ways and Means Committee would do that, uh, but different sections in dealing with regulating automobiles, for example, if, if that has a budget impact. But the real budget reconciliation bill itself will be written by the authorizing committees. Um, and sometimes there are a bunch of different committees that will write those different sections. I think for the COVID bill, for example, it was somewhere at least 10 different authorizing committees wrote different sections of the uh, reconciliation bill. So there were at least 10, and I believe there were even more, I wanna say even 12 different authorizing committees and each of them had their instructions from the budget committee and each of them wrote in their section and they sent them to the budget committees. The budget committee then packaged what the different committees send them, they staple them, and they then send them to the floor. Um, and bear in mind again, just as a reminder, that reconciliation can only change budgetary items, which is to say mandatory spending and taxes. The budget committee uh, on number five is not allowed to make any changes to the sections. They're just required to staple it and then send it to the floor. The reconciliation bills themselves then go each to the House floor and the Senate floor. And during that process in the Senate, because bear in mind that the Bird Rule does not apply in the House, only in the Senate, there is a process where the Senate parliamentarian will sit down with Senate staff and they will go, with go through different provisions looking for violations of the Bird Rule. Anything that is not spending, anything that is not taxes, anything that is policy, and that would be dropped uh, per, per the staff. Or if it actually goes to the Senate floor, then it can be dropped as a point of order. Any senator can raise a point of order um, and insist that um, that provision that violates the Bird Rule um, is dropped. Now, you know, as I said, people who are in the budget world, we you know, we have to find humor wherever we can. And uh, admittedly, it's not that funny, but we like, we think it is. So if a provision in a reconciliation is, is what, what you call when the staff gets together and they scrub a reconciliation bill and they look for any violations and we meet with the Senate parliamentarian, we call that a bird bath. And when something actually gets dropped as a violation of the bird rule, we call that a bird dropping. So number seven, the House and Senate will conference any differences in the reconciliation bills, and they will then send that to the House and Senate floor. Once again, the reconciliation bill cannot be filibustered. Um, and if the House and Senate pass it and the bill is identical, then it becomes law. 
So that just kind of gives you a flavor. And I've gone through it, frankly, very quickly. We'll go through more of the details. But this kind of gives you a picture of, of how complicated it is and how long and arduous it is. Um, so it's not, it is not, it's not uh, um, fast-tracked by any stretch of the imagination. I guess, except in the Senate, anything can be considered fast-tracked, considered the way the Senate usually operates. Um, why don't we go to the next slide? Okay, now let's, let's talk about the Bird Rule. Let me just tell you that um, it is very complex. The determination of what is a violation of the Bird Rule is, is, um, is made by the Senate parliamentarian. She, he or she, in this case she, is a professional, um, nonpartisan public servant, like a judge who calls the balls and strikes as she sees them fairly. Um, so what is, uh, what is the bird rule? As I said before, it bars any items which for the bird rule is considered extraneous to the budget. And what does extraneous mean? As I said before, anything that does not have an impact on the budget. So a provision which changes, produces changes in outlays or revenues which are merely incidental to the non-budgetary components of the provision. And, and remember those words, merely incidental, because uh, th that is what's critical. What Senator Byrd had in mind was that the provision had to be a serious budget uh, policy and not something that had a small impact on the budget, but it was really designed not to impact the budget. I, give you, I can give you a hypothetical example. Let's say we were to, uh, there was a provision to, to uh, ban um, um, uh, abortion, uh, make abortion illegal. Um, and let's assume that that had some kind of impact on Medicaid because abortion was no longer legal. So there was some budget savings. Or I guess you could argue it would be a budget cost. Whatever it is, the policy would be to ban abortion. It's not a budget policy. And so therefore that would be considered a, a violation of the bird rule. So that's number one, um, merely incidental. It does not produce a change in outlays or revenues, or, and this is really an important one, if it adds to the deficit in any year outside the 10-year budget window. So let me give you an example. Um, many years, starting, I remember certainly in 2001 and then in 2003, um, uh, President George W. Bush had tax cuts, um, which he proposed. And um, the goal was to make those tax cuts permanent. Well, the problem with making them permanent is that that meant there was a permanent change to the budget and a permanent addition to the deficit and to the debt. That was a violation of the Bird Rule. So how did they get around the Bird Rule? The tax cuts were made, were sunset. They were sunset at the end of 2010. Um, and by the way, just most recently, the Trump tax cuts, the 2017 tax cuts, are sunset as well. Why are they sunset? Because after the budget window, they actually add to the deficit and debt. And under the Bird Rule, you can't do that. And another example of something which is a violation of the Bird Rule is you can't make changes to Social Security. Social Security is considered you know, the third rail, and Senator Byrd and others did not want to make it any easier to cut Social Security. So they provided that Social Security could not be affected by the Bird Rule. How is the Bird Rule enforced? Any senator can offer a point of order on the Senate floor. And if successful, 
it is eliminated from the bill. Um, now, it would take 60 votes to waive a bird rule point of order, which is very difficult to do. Obviously, it takes a bipartisan agreement. In theory, you could overrule the chair, uh, but that would take 60 votes as well. Although there is a provision in the way the nuclear option was done where you could actually overrule the chair with 51 votes and we can come back to that. Um, examples of bird rule violations. Well, most recently, I think you all remember that Senator Sanders and Senate Democrats very much wanted to include in the COVID package an increase in the minimum wage to $15. The Senate parliamentarian ruled that that increase in the minimum wage could not be in the COVID package. Why? It was a bird rule violation. Why? Because the policy was really to raise the minimum wage. The policy was not to change the budget. And that was her ruling. And uh, I don't think it was a surprise. Um, and so the minimum wage had to get dropped. Another example uh, would be, I mentioned before, uh, abortion rights um, or gun safety. Any laws are restricting guns, for example. Um, another example, because this actually is, is something that we're probably gonna see because um, the new infrastructure bill has, has a bunch of uh, green provisions. I have not studied the bill, but I feel quite certain that there are various restrictions on carbon emissions. If there's just a restriction on carbon emissions saying thou shalt not emit more than X amount, that would probably be a bird rule violation. If, however, it were written in such a way, so there was a tax on carbon emissions, aha, that would not violate the bird rule because the tax obviously is a budget. Whereas the restriction on carbon emissions is policy. It's not an impact on the budget. Now, here's another one that's really interesting that has not gotten much attention. And by the way, this has not been fully litigated, but there's an expectation. I think a lot of people have expected that this infrastructure bill, one way it's going to get passed is there are going to be earmarks in it. And, you know, earmarks always sweeten the pot. Um, and earmarks for the first time in, in almost a decade are now actually allowed again. Um, they're, they're, the prohibition on them has been lifted. But there's, I believe, and a lot of people believe who've studied uh, the bird rule, that earmarks will probably be a violation of the bird rule as well. Why? Because the earmark, the idea of the earmark is not is not impacting the budget. The earmark is the policy of getting a bridge or a tunnel or a school or whatever you want uh, in your district. It's not the impact, the, the idea behind it is, is not to change the budget. So, um, but we'll see, that time will tell whether earmarks um, are included or not. I can, I can, in my opinion, if earmarks are not included, it's gonna be a lot harder to pass. Um, there is a technical exception um, in the bird rule for what's called terms and conditions. So for example, if there's a tax provision in there, the tax provision can have terms and conditions on how in fact the, the tax law is implemented. Um, and those terms and conditions would not be a violation of the rule. Let's move on to the next one. How many tax and reconciliation bills are, will there be in 2021? And the answer is up to three. So let's just go through this step by step because there was a big, big development last night, which you may have seen in the press. There's a big article in the New York Times and the Washington Post about it. So typically in a normal year, there's only one, rec one reconciliation bill and it's tied to the budget resolution for that year. 
But this is not a normal year because this year we were expecting two reconciliation bills. One for the fiscal year 2022 budget resolution, which is the one for next year, that's the normal one, and another one for the 2021 budget resolution. Because remember, Congress did not pass a budget resolution last year. There was no budget resolution. So the way the rules work, Congress gets to pass two budget resolutions this year, one for fiscal year 2021 and one for fiscal year 2022. And guess what? Two budget resolutions, two reconciliation bills. Okay, so that's what everybody was assuming. We'd have two bills. Well, last night, there was something really dramatic that was uh, announced because the Senate parliamentarian decided that for the first time, Congress can write a third reconciliation bill by amending the 2021 budget. Well, if that's true, then that gives the... Uh, that gives Democrats a, a, a third bite at the apple. Obviously, they already used reconciliation once to pass the COVID package. They could use it a second time to pass infrastructure, and they could use it a third time to pass the family plan bill. But it's still not 100% sure, so don't, don't, they should not count their chickens yet. Uh, they should not assume yet that they're going to get what they want, because we're still waiting for more details from the Senate parliamentarian on exactly what she means when she says there can be a third reconciliation bill. Will this next reconciliation bill only allow a debt ceiling or will it actually allow all the reconciliation instructions which mean a full-fledged third budget, uh, sorry, reconciliation bill? So we don't know yet, but suffice it to say that at a bare minimum, we are likely to see two more, uh, sorry, at least one more reconciliation bill and very possibly a second. Let's move on. So let's talk about the budget impact of the uh, American Jobs Plan, um, because there's been a lot of talk about it. Um, there is new spending in total. Out, well, there's spending of a two and a quarter trillion dollars over eight years. There are tax credits of around 400 billion. So over eight years, the cost of it is about 2.7 trillion dollars. There are tax increases in it. Um, over 10 years, it's uh, one and three quarters trillion. Um, over 15 years, it is two and three quarters trillion. So what you see is the 10 years, 10 year window, there's actually a budget increase, uh, sorry, deficit increase of, um, of, uh, of, of almost a trillion dollars. But the 15 year impact is it actually deficit neutral. So depending on exactly how the tax increases are scored and how the spending is scored, it is more likely than not, it will probably comply with the grid rule. Why will it comply with the grid rule? Because after 10 years, it does not add to the deficit of debt. The tax increases are permanent and the spending is temporary. Okay, good news. This is the last one. So the bottom line is, and I think one of the takeaways I hope, I hope you carry from this, is that reconciliation is not easy and it is not fast. And let me just throw a couple more constraints into bear that the White House and Democrats are gonna to have to bear in mind. In addition to all these complicated rules and the fact that they're gonna to have to go through a budget resolution, they're gonna to have to go through conference, they're gonna to have to go through reconciliation instructions, there are 50 hours of debate on a budget resolution on the Senate floor, 50 hours. And on top of that, there is what's called votorama. Votorama basically means that any Senator can offer an amendment 
and debate it for 10 minutes. Any amendment he or, he or she wants, as long as it's germane, and there are an unlimited number of amendments that can be offered. So that lasts another 20 to 30 more hours. So you're talking about 80 hours, as much as that. Uh, and I assume that the Republicans are, are gonna make this as painful as possible uh, if Democrats go through reconciliation. So that's just on the budget resolution. Then you get to reconciliation and you have 20 more hours of debate time on the Senate floor. And you have 20, to 30 more hours because you've got Votorama all over again. Kind of deja vu all over again, Votorama and Votorama. And by the way, I would encourage you to watch, you know, if they do reconciliation, to watch Votorama. It, it's quite a spectacle. It is, um, believe me, it is no way to make law. Um, uh, you know, they say that uh, watching the way laws are made is kind of like watching the way hot dogs are made. You don't want to look too carefully. Votorama is, is, is living proof of that. Um, so you've got an enormous amount of time that this has been consumed. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly for Senate Democrats and the White House, they have to hold 50 votes. They have to hold every single Senate Democrat in line to keep them voting for it, because if they lose even one, they don't have a majority. And obviously, I think you've probably heard Senator Manchin expressing lots of concerns about the size of the tax cuts and size of the package. And he's not the only one. I just saw that uh, Mark Warner from Virginia expressed some concerns today. Um, Kristen Cinema, Mark Kelly. So in any case, keeping 50 votes together is going to be really a trick. So where does this leave us? I think over the next eight months, Congress will be considering two huge new packages. The outcome will obviously have a massive impact on the future of the nation and on the budget. If, unless the filibuster is eliminated, reconciliation will be central to getting it done. Uh, and I hope you can now see that although it is called fast track, there's not much fast about it. It is slow and arduous. And with that, I'm happy to answer your questions. Tom, this is Glenn. Thank you very much. That, that was um, eye-opening and thorough and, and just exactly what this audience needed. So we have a lot of questions, um, so we'll just go rapid fire. Uh, first question, please tell uh, Tom where you're from. Uh, Alan Reich first, and then Fred Zeidman will follow. So Alan, go ahead. Okay, well, Tom, it's Alan Rich, and you know where I'm from because we're good buddies. Um, I thought this was a fascinating presenta presentation, and thank you. My question's rhetorical, and it's not really uh, directed to you. It's really directed to everybody else on this line. We're all active supporters of no labels. We're all active supporters of the Problem Solvers Caucus. We're all active supporters of a bicameral effort of working across the, you know, the, the aisles. And what you talked about today was holding the 50 Democrat votes together. There was no discussion, and, and, and nor should it have been on your part, a discussion of trying to reach across the aisle. And I find that personally extremely troubling at this point in our, our nation's history. And you also point out, we're talking about dramatic changes in government spending and government taxation. And what we're talking about here is doing it with razor thin margins in both houses of Congress um, and once again, I think that's anathema to the very concept of what No Labels was established for. Tom, any comment? 
Well, I, I you know, um, Alan, Alan, Alan and I are dear friends, and um, I always agree with Alan. He's my chairman. Um, and, in, 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 you know, I think, I think his point about the fact that 50 votes, it would be only Democratic votes. You know, the only thing I would say is um, he's right. I mean, this is not going to be bipartisan. Republicans are not going to be part of the process. Um, and um, it's going to be on a straight party line. And, um, uh, you know, that the, the unfortunately, that's happening more and more in the Congress. We saw that in 2017 with the Trump tax cuts, which was would pass only with Republican votes. And um, my own personal opinion is it's, it's not the best way to run a railroad, but uh, I'll stick to the process and let you guys do the policy. Right. And, and, and my only comment is, is that's the reason why I said my comments to the group and not really to you, because the very purpose of, of no labels is to try to um, try to change that. I'll leave it at Thank, that. Thanks, Alan. Uh, Fred, Fred Zeidman. Tom, you know, I don't know if you pick your friends homogeneously, but I'm probably going to start just like Alan. Number one, you know where I'm from because we've been friends for 35 years. Uh, and number two, can you possibly, uh, uh, obviously, you know, 90% of what you just told us is way above my pay grade, but can you put players on the field and put names with some of these? Who, as we watch looking forward, uh, do we need to look for signals of any kind of compromise or, or any kind of uh, uh, Chinese wall that would stop all of this? <laughs> Well, it's a good question, Fred, and it's nice to see you, um, as always. Um, and um, Fred and I met when we were six as well. So you see, That's like, right. We oh, shared a bar mitzvah, didn't we? <laughs> we went with bar mitzvah together. Well, <laughs> this is old family week. Um, I think that more likely than not, if, if there is um, a, a bipartisanship, I think we're going to see it in the Senate and not in the House. Um, we talked about Senator Manchin before. Um, look, if Senator Schumer cannot hold his 50 votes, then he can't get it done. And so you look for the, the loose, uh, the, the, the loose connections there. And, and the ones, you know, I mentioned three of them, Kristen Simoner from, uh, from Arizona, Mark Kelly from Arizona, um, Mark Warner, which was sort of a surprise. Um, uh, so any of them that defect, um, now, mind you, one thing to bear in mind, by the way, is kind of interesting, is it gives any one Democratic senator an enormous amount of power. Um, because any one Democratic senator can extract huge amount of concessions. Basically, I want X, and if I don't want X, I'm going to take my marbles and I'm going to go home. Um, I think that's unfortunate. That that is a bad way for the for the to make policy. Um, but keep your eye on that. Keep your watching that because um, because you know one sen senator um, has that much power. Um, uh, you could see the um, you could see him or her extracting that. But to your specific question, Fred, I mean, I think we know who the players are, um, and you know the the White House is. I guess they, as I understand it, they're continuing to have meetings with Republicans. Um, and look, you know. It is more than possible that Senator um, Manchin will say, I want to go in a bipartisan way. I don't want to use reconciliation. But he hasn't said that, by the way. Um, and that he'll insist in working with Republicans. 
and perhaps you know they can strike a deal. Now I, I I was dismissive of the house. The fact of the matter is that the margin in the house is so extraordinarily narrow right now. Democrats have I think well as of today because um, House Democrat sadly passed away um, that I think there's like a three three or four vote margin and. Um, so that's not a lot. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of other uh, problem solvers in the, among Democrats in the House. And so all you need to do is peel three or four of them away and, and uh, voila, then you're going to have to have a bipartisan deal. So, um, you know, you have to start um, by trying to build that coalition. And I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but um, I think you, you look for the, the, those that are most uncomfortable going this route. Yeah, I just wondered if there were any sleepers out there that uh, you might be aware of. I mean, obviously, the obvious ones that we know are uh, Mansion and uh, what's her name from Arizona. So I didn't know if there was any sleeper that might sneak in there that could. Uh, well, you know, you, can, you know, you can also look at the, the the House and Senate members, Democrats who have tough reelections, um, because they are the ones that might be most uncomfortable voting for something along these lines. And, so, you know, there may be sleepers there, um, but I think they're sleeping so quietly, I, I haven't identified them yet. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Tom. So now we'll go to Ridge Hall and then Yolanda Adrian. So Ridge, you're up. Thanks very much. Um, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, my question related to um, the firm binding nature of the bird rule, is this in effect legally binding or does the a majority leader have the authority to either set it aside or saying we're not going to use it, or um, or can he put it to a straight, um, pure majority vote to say will, will this apply in this particular case or not? What sort of flexibility is there? Well, it's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, the short answer is that the, Senate, the majority leader by himself cannot do that. He does not have the power to. So it would most in most. Sort of, sort of cutting to the chase in terms of the Senate process, without getting into a lot of the detail, in the same way that the nuclear option was exercised, um, uh, you could use 51, 50 votes could get around the Bird Rule. So if 50 senators want to overrule the Bird Rule, uh, they can do it. Uh, it's, it's complicated how they get it done. But again, let me just be clear that Senator Manchin and others have said they don't want to do it with the filibuster and they don't want to do it with the bird rule. Now, it is possible, by the way, that the bird rule may be a bar to something that Senator Manchin really likes. Let's, uh, let's just make up a story here. Let's assume there's a bridge uh, or a school in, uh, somewhere in uh, West Virginia that he wants and the bird rule has made that a bird dropping. Well, you know, he, that might be the price he would extract. Um, so the bottom line is, if you have 50 votes in the Senate, you can get around the Bird Rule. But it takes 50 votes. And again, uh, this is not a very strong, unified Democratic majority. But just remember the fact that 50 votes is not even a majority in the Senate. You need the 51st vote of the vice president to, to break the tie. So it is a very loose majority. It is a weak majority, I, I would say, right now. On the other hand, um, you know, Senator, sorry, Senator Biden. Um, President Biden is uh, is in his first year of his first term. There is an enormous amount of goodwill toward him. I think on both sides of the aisle, 
And there's an enormous desire, particularly among Democrats, for him to succeed. They want him to win. And um, so that that creates a lot of pressure. I see now I'm getting away from the process and into sort of my prognosticating, but I, I do think there's an enormous amount of pressure on Democrats in order to, uh, if I can show my age and uh, borrow a Republican, win one for the Gipper uh, and uh, you know win one for Biden. And so I think there's gonna be a lot of pressure on Senate Democrats to uh, stick together. Um, but I would not underestimate the challenge that would be to get that done. And I might add, just parenthetically, these bills are huge. I mean, we're talking about, mind you, we've already passed a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. Now we're talking about a $2.65 trillion infrastructure bill with a lot of stuff, other stuff in it. I mean, let's be honest, it's being called, again, I'm getting away from the process, so forgive me, but there's a lot of green stuff in there and there's a lot of stuff on home health care and things that frankly are not exactly directly tied to, to infrastructure. Um, there's a lot in there for competitiveness. I know that the, the president and the administration are, are, as I think we all are, deeply concerned about the, the, the uh, economic challenge from China and uh, want to make sure that our economy is, is ready to meet that challenge. So there's a lot in there, um, you know, in terms of broadband computers, you know, you name it, that some of which is infrastructure, but some of which I think is arguably not. So my point is, that's $2.65 trillion. And you've got a tax increase of $2.65 trillion, $2.75 trillion. And now you have another package that's coming down that's still being written. So these are huge budget bills and huge challenges. Now, I will just say one thing. Um, and that is, I think, it, you know, there's been a, some criticism of this as, as adding to the deficit. And I, I would just advise all of you to be careful. Because if you look at the numbers, they act, this thing actually does not over over the long term. I know I know John Maynard Keynes said over the long term we're all dead, but uh, over the long term it does not add to the deficit. Um, over eight years, yes, it does. But these tax increases are permanent, and so actually over 15 years it would actually reduce the deficit. Now you should know that the administration has been under pressure from progressives and others not to raise taxes to that degree. Um, be, for a variety of reasons, their bottom line is, why should we pay for it? Let's just charge it to the debt and to the deficit. So I think, you know, the administration deserves some credit because they believe that they wanted to, in their view at least, be fiscally responsible and not add it to the debt and deficit, which is why the tax increases match, match, match the spending increases. Thank you. Uh, Yolanda and then Bob Tuttle, please. Yolanda, you're up. Thank you. Good evening, Tom. Thank you for being with us. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. We're in the news every day for some reason or another. Um, this question might not be exact, exactly on topic, but once these funds are encumbered, if they're not spent, what happens to them? Is there a way to unencumber them? When you say encumber and unencumber them, I'm not sure. I, I'm sure. I mean, well, in other words, if they're going to spend one point some trillion dollars on the Economic Recovery Act. And they don't spend it all. For, for instance, they're being very, very slow in spending the money for the schools. So what happens? Is that Does that encumber future budgets or does it get dropped? No, it just goes into the pipeline and um, it gets spent. General, I'm sorry. General. It will get spent. It will get spent. Um, or I should say 
it has the opportunity for getting spent. I shouldn't say you. I mean, there, there's some federal money that you know creates certain conditions and, and uh, uh, policies and says this money shall be spent under X terms or to construct a certain whatever. Well, if the whatever isn't constructed, the money is not spent. Um, but but it doesn't it doesn't just kind of go away if it's not spent within a certain time, Yolanda. If that if I understood your question correctly. And the other thing, your comment about this not adding to the deficit, yeah. that would presume that that Joe Biden and any future uh, presidents in the next several years aren't going to be spending trillions of dollars every 100 days. I mean, right. that presumes that we're going to have three big bills and that's it for the next eight years. So I don't think that really, that doesn't flow for me. Uh, let me try to clarify, because that, that's a fair point, Yolanda. What I'm trying to say is, it's a package that has been proposed does not add to the deficit debt. I'm not trying to say, suggest for a minute, that necessarily all those policies are going to be offset. I mean, look, the, the COVID package was not offset at all. That was $1.9 trillion. And I'm, I don't want to pretend to suggest that they've got other things in the pipeline that are, are, are will add to the debt and deficit. All I'm saying is that the package that we have before us so far is offset and paid for. Right, but that's not very impressive, the rate of spending they're doing. So we'll go to Bob Tuttle and then to Bob Burr. Uh, Bob Tuttle, you're up. I have a comment more to, than a question, but to really counter a little bit, maybe what Alan and Fred said. I'm a, I like very much being a part of No Labels and believe what they're doing. But based on what the Republicans have done so far, let's take the example of the COVID. Uh, I happen to be an automobile dealer, and uh, uh, when Biden said 1.9 billion, and responsible Republicans came in and offered him, I think around 30 percent. If somebody offered me 30 percent of what my asking price was for an automobile, I wouldn't think they were serious. And I guess based on what the Republicans responded to the COVID bill and what McConnell has said uh, that he's going to fight this, I think I forget exactly the language, but to the very end, there seems to me no effort on the behalf of the Republicans uh, to make any effort uh, to come to any kind of compromise. Um, and by the way, I am a Republican. Uh, my friend Frank Baxter who's on the call probably won't speak to me anymore, but I, I'd like to see a little compromise on behalf of the Republican Party, which so far they've shown absolutely none in my opinion. Tom, you want to comment? You've been part of a lot of bipartisan efforts. Well, uh, let me just make a broader point, um, Bob. Um, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to say, again, I, I'm, I'm really wearing my nonpartisan hat, my, my no labels hat tonight. I would just say more broadly, and I think this is a reason why no labels plays an important role. Unfortunately, whatever party is in control, the other party, their number one goal is to get into the majority, to get in control. And their strategy for how to do that is to draw bright lines. You see, when you're in the minority and the majority succeeds with your help, then the voters don't really know the difference between the two parties. And so when you're in the minority, and, and I think this is unfortunate, this, not, this was not the way when I came to Capitol Hill, I, I, I first started working on the Hill in 1978. I remember you know, Tip O'Neill and, and uh, Ronald Reagan working together on social security reform and tax reform and a lot of other things. But the rules have changed since then. And unfortunately, the minority, and I say this not just about the Republicans, I say this about Democrats too, is that, you know, the goal is don't give the majority a win. And if they are going to win, make them win with their own votes. And for goodness sake, 
make sure you don't give them any votes so that when you go to election time, you can say, look at all the terrible things they did in their bill, and the voters won't be able to come back and say, well, you help them. So I, you know, as to Bob's point, unfortunately, I think what, what we're seeing is a is is part of a trend in politics generally, and that's um, that's a change from where things used to be. And uh, um, personally, I liked it the old way. But doesn't that mean? Excuse me, but doesn't that mean that, that our whole attempt through no labels is a futile process? I hope not. I think not. Um, uh, I wouldn't be here tonight if I thought it were. Um, I think the goal is to to move the country, move the Congress back toward those days when the two parties could work together, which is why there's been some progress already. And, you know, look at look at the work of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Look what happened in December of um, 2020 when the last COVID package was adopted. In fact, that was a bipartisan deal. Now, it happened after the election. Well, you, you, know, you can read into that what you want. But the fact is that was bipartisan. So I think there are opportunities there, and I think there's reason for hope. Um, I guess all I was trying to do was sort of explain to you some of the dynamics that No Labels is up against. And I don't think No Labels has ever underestimated the challenges it faces. And my, might I add, by the way, I don't, you know, Congress is really emblematic of what's going on in the country at large. My goodness, you know, we are so badly divided into red or blue, um, Republicans versus Democrats, it's become a blood sport. And, um, I think that's scary and I think that's tragic. And, um, uh, you know, you have more than half the Republican party that still thinks that Donald Trump won the election. We've got to bridge that gap. We've got to close it because it's going to kill us. You know, I tell my students in America, a bird can't fly with one wing. We have to come together. And that's what no labels is doing every single day. And that's why I think you guys are playing in a really important role. And I think there is reason for hope. And I gave you an example of a, of, of a package that, that that was bipartisan. And, you know, there are little green sprouts here and there. Um, I know the House rules better than the Senate rules, but I know that the House rules change um, as a result of uh, pressure to um, uh, make sure that, you know, in a minor way that, that, that things operate in a slightly more bipartisan way. I mean, when I was in the House, the majority could block any bill it wanted, any bill it wanted through the Rules Committee. Well, there's a there's a change in the House rules now so that if a bill is co-sponsored by a majority, that um, that it actually has a right on to go to the floor. Tom, this is Glenn here. I'm going to jump in and ask a, a question about tactics to follow up on Mark. Then we'll go to Bob Burt, and then Bill will close. And we have nine minutes to fit all that in. So here's my tactical question in the House. Let's say you have four or five congressmen, Democrats, problem solvers. You know the process better than anyone. Where, what point in the process tactically are they most powerful to stop the reconciliation process? Um, I would frankly, yeah. I mean, right now, I mean, what I, what I think, I think what's most important, it's important to get a group of them because if you have three or four of them, you can get one or two to peel away and then, you know, and then they all peel away. You know, you want to get a, a core of 10 or 15, 10 at least members who go to the speaker and say, we are not going to vote for this bill without these conditions being met. And, um, or we're not going to vote for the bill at all um, unless it's bipartisan. Um, so this is the time to do it. 
look, you can also, you know, hell, you can play hardball and, uh, you know, you can go along and wait till it goes to the floor of the house and the roll call is called and by and large, by golly, you don't have 218 votes. Well, I think that's a little late in the game. So I, I would, I think the earlier the better is my, my view. Uh, Bob Burr, thank you, Tom. Um, yeah, uh, hey, thanks for a great presentation. Uh, I've been involved for with no labels for probably close to 10 years. And, um, you know, I, I ran a fairly large company, $5 billion for 10 years, and I had to uh, face financial analysts every quarter. They didn't ask about process, they asked about results. And uh, I, I'm really wondering how patient should we be as no labels with the people who are part of no labels and when we expect them to stand up uh, when something isn't nonpartisan and they don't, how patient should we be? And, and I understand the pressures that are on them. And you know, looking at the dark side, we raise a lot of money for them and they could just be in it for the money. Uh, I know that's not a popular view and hopefully it's not right, but it's all part of the process. You know, I'm, I'm a Marine. I judge people by how they judge when the bullets are flying. And right now, uh, I, I wish we had more people that would fire back. I, your comments. I hear you. Uh, I, I respect what you're saying. Um, and I understand, you know, you can get, one can get bogged down in the process and, and look, uh, the proof of the pudding is in the taste. And um, if, if the people that you give money to, and I'm not, making any recommendations or advising, but look, you know, um, I've been around politics long enough. Um, and if, you know, you play, if you play hardball with them, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to just walk away and say, forget it, or they're going to, they're going to go along. I, you know, and that's a tough one. Um, never underestimate the pressure they're under from their own party and from their own base. I will just tell you one thing, one of the unfortunate things about politics and something that, um, again, that I teach my students, I think gerrymandering has done more to destroy the political process than anything along the lines. Why do I say that? Because 90%, 95% of the members of the House have districts that are so overwhelmingly red or blue. The real election for them is not the general election, it's the primary. And the greatest fear they have is a primary challenge, either being challenged from the left or being challenged from the right. And the first goal of every politician, you know, uh, sadly, I, you know, um, is, is uh, you know, Edmund Burke notwithstanding, is survival. You know, they like their job and they want to hold on to it. And um, so they don't want to get a primary challenge. Um, it is a rare bird, a rare member of Congress who says, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do the tough thing, even if it's the wrong thing. And, you know, frankly, Edmund Burke was defeated by, the, by his, uh, his voters and um, a lot of the people who do that, uh, I happen to have worked for one for 25 years, he lost his seat because of that as well. But, you know, I respect what you're saying, Bob. I think it's a, it's a powerful message. So, so Tom, with that, we, I'm gonna turn it over, it's a sincere pleasure to turn it over to Bill Galston to um, wind up this session. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. I'm glad it hasn't felt like a month. Bill, you're up. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Glenn. I want to close with two points, and they're both hopeful. First, 
to Bob Burt and to a number of others who've raised tough questions. Bob, I'm a Marine too, served during the Vietnam era. I know what you're talking about. I share your impatience. Uh, and I, I think I think we all do. But I want to make, you know, I want to make a point about where we are in the process. If my math is correct, we are 74 days into the new administration. We have had one bill that went through on a straight party line vote. Uh, and after the high that we experienced last December, the victory uh, for the problem solvers bipartisanship, I think we were all disappointed. Uh, but if you step back and take a look at the situation, it was a new president. Uh, you had a Democratic Party that did not want to hobble their new president right out of the box. It, that was a very tough bill to say no to. The circumstances for the bill that's now teed up and the one to follow are very different. Uh, Tom referred to the fact you know, that the Democratic majority is both thin and unruly. In the Senate, you have a Democratic Party that stretches from Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin. In any European parliamentary democracy, they wouldn't be close to being members of the same political party. Uh, and as Tom rightly emphasized, reconciliation is no panacea because with an evenly divided Senate, the Senate majority leader needs to hold every Democrat. A single defection would destroy the reconciliation process. I am convinced that there are substantive disagreements between many Democrats uh, and, the, and the administration's proposal. I expect those disagreements to be aired, both in private and in public. Uh, Senator Manchin has said that a bill that he can support won't resemble the administration's opening bid very closely. We'll see, uh, but the assessment of political observers that I respect is that this second bill is unlikely to go the way the first one did. There's going to be much more substantive discussion. There's going to be much more committee involvement in the process. Uh, and there is like there are likely to be much larger changes. Uh, whether the I sincerely hope that the senators that we've been working with uh, in the Republican senators will, will be willing uh, to do what Bob Tuttle has urged them to do. That would be a game changer, along with the willingness of the Democrats that we've been working with in the Senate uh, to stand up and say, no, you know, this, you know, th this train may be steaming in the station, but it's not about to leave the station until we pull the lever and get it going. Uh, so there are, there are many, many opportunities for no labels to influence this process. Uh, I've talked about the Senate, but I think there are opportunities in the House as well. I think it is perfectly fair you know, to 
view this bill as a major test of the the no labels proposition. I think it's probably fairer to view the second bill in that light than the first because of the special factors that I mentioned around the around the first bill. Uh, so, how much patience should we have? The answer is our patience should not be exhausted yet. I'm not saying that it should be inexhaustible, but not yet. So, Bob, you know, to use a phrase you've heard before, hold your fire. <laughs> now, here's my second point. And I'm not, I'm not saying this because, you know, I've known Tom for 28 years, which I guess makes me a piker by the standards of a lot of people in this group. But I want to, you know, I want to point to Tom as, a, as an example of another thing that gives me hope. You know, Tom is the model of a public servant. Not in it for the money not in it for the glory. He wants to do the job correctly and fairly. And he's earned a terrific reputation throughout Washington and beyond Washington because he has been an exemplary public servant. And here's the good news. He is not alone. Throughout my public life, government has been on the defensive and I understand why. But I think it's important for everybody in the call to understand that the Tom Cons of this world are there and they're doing their level best to hold the country together in very difficult times to do their jobs fairly and honorably. And I think that one of, one of the things that no labels can do is to lift up people like Tom who are doing public service in a spirit of bipartisanship and fairness and impartiality. Uh, and so, Tom, you know, you know, I am not ashamed to flatter you to your face and to say there are others like you, and God willing, there'll be many more like you in the next generation, although God only knows why they volunteer at this point. So with that, uh, unless there's further business before us, I guess I should declare the meeting adjourned. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Thank Thanks, you, Bill. Tom. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.